We are in a three-part sermon series that I'm calling Cross-Examined. I did it to save myself time as I prepare sermons for man camp, as I'm the main speaker there. And um, I still have a sermon to finish for that, and perhaps a few touch-ups on a few of the slideshows I've done. I would value your prayers as well concerning that and that weekend. I was originally pulling back from a series of sermons I did when COVID lockdown first hit. As I looked at the last one that I had intended to preach on, I just, it was even the, the Easter sermon of 2020 and I just felt like, no, that's not what I need to share. And, um, there was a chat that we were having in Dean's class last Sunday concerning Abraham and, and Abraham and offering Isaac. And then that chat led to the comparisons of Jesus and how the Father offered Him. And then the idea of Barabbas came up. And if you didn't know, Barabbas also means son of the Father. And um, and I, I remember that sermon I preached on it in Mark. And so this past week, whenever that other sermon I planned just wasn't gripping me, what was gripping me was this account from Mark which I preached through some time ago. It's a sermon from September of 2017. And it's the story of Jesus and Barabbas and how this really uh, fits with the presentation of the gospel truth right in the gospel. So it's in Mark 15, if you want to be turning there. And it's it's in the middle of perhaps one of the most well-known Bible stories, the trial and crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, and again, we, we read today a very physical representation of the gospel and what it is. And we see an exchange of sorts take place. And it's a physical representation of the spiritual reality for all of our lives. If we understand this exchange and all of its ironies and all of its injustice and the upside down and inside outness, we really understand the gospel well. And the more anyone understands the gospel, hopefully the more compelling, absorbing, and sweet and savoring it should become. Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians. So, if you're able, I do invite you to stand if you're able to read Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 15. We read, Now at the feast, Passover, he, Pilate, used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered him up because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, Then what shall I do with him, whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate was saying to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. 
Father, many of us read the Bible every year. We read through many accounts of the Bible, many things in the Bible constantly. And somehow, some way, your Holy Spirit still manages to use it to amaze us and help us to come before you in reverence and awe as we should. So we pray for that today, that you would use this story to glorify your Son, that we would be more immersed in Him than we ever have been, that we would desire Him more than we ever have, and that we would be like Him more than we ever have been. Uh, Holy Spirit, You're the one who wrote these words. You're the one who can enrich our faith and hearts today. So we pray that You would be speaking and not I. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. You may be seated. Besides just talking about this story in Sunday school last Sunday, as I began to look over the message I had written six and a half years ago, I saw it actually picked up on something I preached last week. Uh, Last week we looked at the hope of the Christian. We looked at some language in 1 Peter 1 where Peter wrote about what we were redeemed by. He says that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. How many of you think that's perishable? currency, (laughs) from our feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And I mentioned very briefly last week that redeemed is a buying back from slavery term. That's where it was mostly used. And slavery is a large theme in the Bible. Uh, Perhaps the biggest event, one of the events I just got done reading to Calvin yet again, because this is what he requests often, the story of Moses. And it's perhaps the biggest event in the first five books of the Bible, if not the Old Testament, that lays the groundwork of understanding God in his redemptive history, that that is God and how he works to save people from sin. The story of the Exodus, it's a topic we actually peripherally touched on the beginning of this series, if you remember the snakes in the wilderness. Over and over again in the Exodus, Moses leading the Israelites from Egypt is referred back to in the Bible, I should say. And immediately when the Israelites are liberated from Egypt, they are told, in not so many terms, but then nevertheless they are spiritually in bondage. This is the reason for the Ten Commandments. The Israelites are, in essence, set free to worship God, set free to serve Yahweh in the Promised Land. But once they are set free from Egypt, now they need to live free. And what God does through the Ten Commandments is reveal ten areas how these Israelites are still in bondage. It reveals to us how we are still in bondage. Oh, we see that the law never intended to be a source of salvation. This is exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 3.20. Don't worry, you're like, where is Barabbas, Kevin? Why are you talking about all the... Anyways, we'll get there. But this is exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 3.20, that by the works 
of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's all that comes through the law, knowledge of sin. Simply knowing where we foul up does nothing to save us. It just shows us the bars of the prison that we're in. So the great irony in the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt was the revelation to them by God on Mount Sinai that they are still captives, <laughs> just in another prison, namely sin. It's actually been a prison they've been in even when they were they were in Egypt. They were imprisoned by sin and by themselves. And this is why coupled with Paul's understanding and preaching on the bondage and slavery of sin revealed to us by the law, also comes the preaching that there is liberation through Christ Jesus. Acts 13, 38-39 records for us in a sermon of Paul's. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Christ forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Him everyone who believes is freed from all things which you cannot be freed through the law of Moses. So hopefully you're getting this picture. If we don't know, if we aren't followers of Christ Jesus, we are enslaved or in bondage. Slaves to sin. We can't stop sinning. <laughs> and because the wages of sin is death, we therefore can't stop dying. And so as you read the Bible, the stakes build, the tension rises, and the world yearns for salvation, even back so far as Job, as was talked about in Phil's class. Moses takes the rebellious bunch from Egypt only to wander for 40 years. Joshua conquers the promised land. And these people with the law of Moses descend into the time of the judges, where the law was ignored because it could not be followed, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I would argue the lowest point, the people of Israel, at its lowest point, the people of Israel ignore God and disobey God completely, is emphasized actually in 1 Samuel 8, 7 and 8, where God says to Samuel, the last judge, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. I wonder if you see how this is the antithesis of the Exodus. God had freed them from Egypt to serve Him, and it is here that the Israelites voice, we don't want to be a set-apart people. We don't want to be God's people. We want a king like the rest of the world. And God sees that, and God gives them what they want. And even though the so-called great kings have great flaws, David and Bathsheba and his son Solomon and his wives, and the entire Old Testament is filled with a world that is just held captive by their sins. I wonder if that resonates with you. You sin, and you cannot help it. can't stop doing it. Even your best attempts to overcome them is met with tragedy and failure and flaws. So what's going to happen? 
So that's why there's a reason that the book we're in, along with the other three first three books of the New Testament, is called the Good News, the Gospel, because it has the answer to our problem. This is, what, this is what the entire Old Testament's been yearning for, leaning into, crying out for. There's a need for a Redeemer. So we are looking into what is often called His passion. And the word passion is just Latin, comes from the Latin, I should say, for suffering. Immediately coming up to our passage in Mark 15, Jesus has most recently been sent through this horrific, jacked-up, unjust trial. He was taken to the high priest, basically the ruling religious figure in the Jewish establishment, part of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the highest echelon, highest authority on the planet Earth for all of Judaism at the time. And Jesus is taken into this guy's house in the twilight hours, mourning for a disciplining disciplinary hearing. Not exactly kosher, excuse the pun, but... It's not the norm. It's very intentional for this ruling of Jesus. Point being, the Jewish authorities, they want Jesus dead. And you read the passages leading up to Mark 15. Jesus is falsely accused. Their motives, Pilate even catches on to in our passage today. But the Sanhedrin does get one accusation right. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy because Jesus confessed to the true statement that he is God. That's Mark 14.62. The Sanhedrin doesn't accept him, so they judge him of blasphemy. But then they want their hands to be clean of the final desire that they have, that is his murder. So they hand Jesus over to Pilate, telling Pilate, saying, hey, this man claims to be our king. We don't think he's our king. And because he says he's the king of the Jews, he's an insurrectionist. And if you want to protect Rome from civil unrest, you better deal with this guy. We don't like him. Pilate talks with Jesus and realizes that Jesus is harmless when it comes to things that Pilate and Rome should worry about. He's not violent. Jesus isn't telling his followers to do harm to Rome or to any citizens. This is just a religious matter. But whoever Jesus is and however Jesus is acting is obviously ticking off people who are fanatical and angry and and whatever, and that is the Jewish high priests. And so Pilate decides to try and spare Jesus with the crowd. Because Jesus has been popular with the crowd. That's why for the Sanhedrin to have, that's why the Sanhedrin had Jesus' trial in the darkness, to keep the crowd and their favoritism away from Jesus. As we pick up the story in Mark 15, 6, to use this fitting image throughout the Old Testament, a story about prisoners. You and I are prisoners. We see that they demand, what they demand is to unchain the un, the enslaved son. That's the demand. I'll talk about it in a second. But our first point today, verses 6 and 7. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Again, Pilate here is trying to save Jesus by giving the crowd another prisoner, a man named Barabbas. Mark tells us that this man had committed murder in the insurrection. Irony, here is a man guilty of a violent crime doing exactly what the Sanhedrin accused Jesus of doing. Insurrection. 
Barabbas is a man who truly wants to overthrow the Romans and will use violent force if necessary. Another gospel account, Matthew 27, 26, only in some Bible translations, because only some of the original manuscripts where we render our translations from, nevertheless, they give Barabbas' first name. He has two names. His full name is Jesus Barabbas. You know what those names mean? Jesus means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. And then Barabbas, if you heard me a while ago, the word bar meaning son, and then the other word Abba meaning father. So Barabbas then simply means son of the father. Pilate here is offering an exchange. One Jesus, whom we know by Jesus' own admission and the father's affirmation, Jesus is the son of God. You can have that Jesus. Or you can have another Jesus, the Son of the Father. This Barabbas, if we take into account all the scriptures about him, is really no puny insurrectionist. John 18.40 suggests he was a robber. Here in Mark suggests he was a murderer. And all in all, an insurrectionist. Thus he was likely a guerrilla warfare type soldier, likely harassing both upper class Jews who had it cozy with the Romans and Romans. So he probably had a little favor with the common people. So the irony is is loaded. Do you want this son of the Father or that son of the Father? Do you want this Jesus or that Jesus? Do you want Jesus who claims to be king of the Jews by peace or this Jesus who wants to be a king of the Jews by force? Do you want the sinner or the saint? And by choosing one, it means the other will die. And what's going to happen when Jesus Christ does die is he's going to accomplish ushering in the kingdom of God by his service, humility, peace, and death. Though this other Jesus Barabbas has failed to usher in the restored kingdom of God, though he has tried through force and violence. He's failed to bring redemption for Israel because he himself is enslaved to his sins. He's the enslaved Son, yet the religious leaders of their day, completely morally pure as they are, say, to unchain the enslaved son. And to chain up the Redeemer. That's the next movement today in Mark 5, 8 through 12. It says, And the multitude went up and began asking Pilate to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered him up because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. I want you to see that the only innocent party here is Jesus Christ. Not even Pilate is innocent. Now a reader of Mark might look at verse 10 and say, Pilate is wrong. I mean, the high priests believe they have good grounds here. Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. It is in their ears blasphemy. According to their law, Jesus deserved punishment. That's according to their law. In fact, Leviticus 24.16 says, anyone who blasphemes is deserving of death. But what Mark is telling us is the truth, that Pilate, a fellow sinner himself, knows what envy is when he sees it. Sure, the high priest believes that they have lawful grounds for Jesus' death and it was just his means to accomplish what he's really wanted to do for a long time. To murder Jesus. That's what the high priest has wanted to do. 
We're told all the way back in Mark 3, 6. I don't, that's the wrong passage, but Mark 3, 6, that people are plotting Jesus' death. So everyone is being manipulated. The high priest is manipulating Pilate to have Jesus imprisoned and ultimately executed to begin with. The crowd is being manipulated by the high priest. And the crowd is also governing the governor and telling him who to release. Everyone is loaded with sin. (laughs) The entirety of of Mark's chapters 11-13 through gives us story after story of Jesus accusing and, and pointing out sin in the Sanhedrin. The crowd is guilty of condemning God in the flesh to death. Pilate is not ruling as he ought. He's complicit in the murder of Jesus as well. Barabbas is a murder, robber, and insurrectionist. And the irony of irony is that it is Jesus, the only perfect one in this whole jacked up, sin-ridden mess, he's being condemned to death. What? It is Jesus, the one in chains and being led to execution for no sin or deed of consequence. It is also he who is really in charge of all this. The Sanhedrin think they're winning. Pilate thinks he's still in control. It appears the crowd is actually in control since they get to decide who lives and dies. But it is Jesus who has authority to lay down his life and authority to pick it up again. Verses 11 and 12 again, it says, But the chief priests stirred up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? I told you at the beginning that this is a perfect physical representation of what the gospel is. Because this, my friends, is the great exchange. And the truth is, is that in this story, if you put yourself in here, you are not Jesus. You're not an innocent bystander, unaware of what's going on. You're not innocent, period. If you're anyone in this story, you are Barabbas. You and I are the ones enslaved by our deeds. And what's happening here in physical form, the sinner deserving of his captivity, being released freely on account of the most innocent of men, undeserving of what's about to happen to him being taken in in his stead. I love how Paul puts it, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. You've likely heard it from me before. And I didn't put that one up either. He... Made He, God, made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And in that passage we see an answer to a question that might have naturally come up if we don't know the Gospel. See, I told you quite rightly that the irony is is that the only one in charge of this whole situation is the guy who appears to be the lousiest candidate to be in charge, namely Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the innocent one being led to his death. And if Jesus is in charge, and if he has authority to lay down his life and pick it up again, then why in the world is he doing this? For us. For our sake. Again, the irony is is that Jesus is dying for all these people. He's dying for the envious, self-righteous, power-hungry, hypocritical Jewish leadership. He's dying for the spineless, manipulated Roman governor Pilate. He's dying for the clueless, impressionable crowd and for the murderous, thievish, insurrectionist Barabbas. And He's dying for you. 
So I want you to see that in the big telling of the Gospel of Mark is this picture of the Gospel, this great exchange, this unrighteous for the righteous, the sinful for the holy, the guilty for the innocent. And this is great news because it means no matter what sin you harbor, no matter how bad you are, no matter what sins and things you commit, no matter how enslaved you are, it is not on you to get into heaven. It is not on you to be made righteous before God. It is not on you to inherit eternal life. It is not on you to find your way out of prison. It's all on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has taken that. Do you see the beautiful picture here of unmerited favor and grace? The choosing of Barabbas for life. Pilate brings Barabbas and Jesus before the crowd. Barabbas is a murderer, insurrectionist, and robber. Jesus is a life giver, king, ruler, generous. And who is saved? Barabbas is saved. Why? What did Barabbas do? Nothing. In fact, if anything, he's ill-deserving. This is why Paul says, oh, there it is. (laughs) This is why Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption of which is in Christ Jesus. Barabbas, Barabbas' release is a perfect picture of grace. Now, I know I'm preaching the gospel again. But as I said, Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians do because some of us, I wonder if we really don't understand this. And I'm talking to myself. We say we do and we think we do, but we really do not. Maybe it's just me who's been a Christian since the proverbial womb that, that wrestles with this, but I wonder if it's not just me. How do you know if you wrestle with this? You know you wrestle when you feel that God is not pleased with you. There is no way in the world, if you are a Christian, that God would never be pleased with you. But Kevin, I've I've sinned again. And I say I'm a believer, but I don't act like one. Well, then accept the grace of Jesus. See, Paul tells us we are justified by His grace not by our works. Paul says that our justification is dependent on the redemption found in Christ Jesus, not the works found in ourselves. Paul says that eternal life is given to us as a gift, not handed to us as an earning. How can the proverbial Barabbas merely be released? How can a guy like Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, and a thief, how can a guy like me, a gluttonous, self-righteous, religious guy, how can anyone be saved? If we all fall short of the glory of God, how am I justified? How can I accept Christ, return to sin sometimes, and in all of this still be assured of salvation? And it's what Jesus is about to do right here. Pilate asks again in verse 12, And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate was saying to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And wishing to satisfy the multitude, because that's always a good motivation, 
Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, we're going to talk about that, he delivered him to be crucified. We don't fully grasp the horror of this picture and what the crowd is asking, what these people are saying. It's more than just calling for the death sentence. It's more than just a contemporary picture of a crowd outside the White House. Put to death this cultural leader or that politician. Whoever. That would be a bad scene enough. The crucifixion. Words like cross and, and, and crucifixion and, and scourged, we almost pass them over too lightly. They were words of disturbing taboo in that day. They were considered too even depraved and barbaric for Romans to ever experience it. Now, whenever you have Rome who sends Romans to prisoners, and oh, well, don't worry, we're not going to crucify you. It's really bad. <laughs> Only the most detestable of Roman criminals would ever have to face it. I can't even put into contemporary terms the shock and morbid unpleasantness because hopefully there is a general sense of humaneness that nothing like that exists today, but it still does. The crowd is willingly calling for this man who is, yes, accused of blasphemy, but apparently other than that, just talk too much. And Pilate asks, why? What evil thing has he done? And what the crowd is calling for this man who is vaguely, ambiguously charged of something is probably best described as an act of state-sponsored terrorism. Pilate, out of wishing to satisfy the crowd, sends Jesus away whom by his own admission finds little nothing, little to nothing wrong with him to be scourged and then crucified. And if, you, if you've been here for some time to time, I've read this before, it's been a couple of years, but I'm going to give you a picture that the gospel doesn't give us because these first readers of the gospel probably were more than familiar than they care to be with what's about to happen. But for us, we read that scourging itself was such a painful event that many people died from it without ever even making it to their cross. Jesus' hands would have been chained above his head to expose his back and legs to an executioner's whip called a cat of nine tails or a flagrum. Two men, one on each side, took turns whipping the victim. The whip was a series of long leather straps. At the end of some of the straps were heavy balls of metal intended to tenderize the body of a victim like a chef tenderizes a steak by beating it. Some of the straps had hooks made of glass, metal, or bone that would have sunk deeply into the shoulders, back, buttocks, and legs of the victim. Once the hooks had lodged into the tenderized flesh, the executioner would rip the skin, muscle, tendons, and even bones off the victim. The victim's skin and muscles would hang off the body like ribbons as the hooks dissected the skin to the nerve layers. The damage could go so deep that even the lungs were bruised, which made breathing difficult. Some doctors have compared the damage of flogging to the result of a shotgun blast. The victim would bleed profusely and would often go into shock due to severe blood loss and insufficient blood flow near and through the heart. This was just the beginning. This is the after having Jesus scourged part. And this is what the crowd, due in part being stirred up by the high priests, demanded of Jesus. This is what Pilate gave Jesus over to. This is what Jesus, who is in charge of this whole ordeal, submitted himself to. And after this, likely by the point of after the scourging, as Isaiah prophesies of Jesus in Isaiah 52.14, 
we read that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And then Jesus is going to be given a heavy cross beam to carry throughout the city of Jerusalem up a hill, likely already bleeding and suffering from this scourging. In fact, whenever he collapses under the cross and Simon has to carry it, some believe that that was due to injury. Maybe his lungs were punctured in the scourging. But this is what Barabbas just escaped. Barabbas' accomplices likely are the two criminals that Jesus will be hung between. They experience this suffering too. This horrific act of injustice is the act of salvation is where redemption is found. Isaiah would go on to prophesy in in, in Isaiah 53, again, 700 years prior to Christ accomplishing it, Isaiah would say, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Now again, if you don't know the gospel, some might say, this is so dark, twisted, and weird. How does a, how does this bloody man on a cross save us? How does a so-called good God do that? And the answer is in the question, good God. God is a good God. And in order to be good, one must be objectively righteous altogether, just without any ounce of evil. And God cannot look at the world and be okay with it. We talked about that in prayer time. This is in fact the foundation for many skeptics who don't believe in God. They will look at all the injustice and they're not okay with it. And they and they blame God instead of what is so plainly evident here in our text today. The cause of all the injustice in the world is not God, but humanity. I once heard that in the aftermath of World War II, many people... We're asking about Hitler and the Third Reich and all the injustice of the prison cramps and the hostility and the inhumanity. And they all ask the booming question, who is to blame for all this? Can we blame Hitler? There was a theatrical play was written about the matter. and This play shows a series of accusations and the respondents always seem to find blame on another person. I was acting on orders. I was a victim. I didn't know what was happening completely. I didn't believe it was happening. And finally, blame is administered to God. And God had all the resources in His power to stop such a thing, and He didn't stop it. So what's His verdict? God is judged and condemned to become a man, a wanderer on the earth, a homeless, hungry, despised Jew. And He takes the blame of everyone's sins. God is a good God. And in His goodness, He made the world and He made you and me. And it is you and I who fell and gave in to sin. And God, being altogether good and pure and without blemish, cannot be in covenant with sinners. But simultaneously true is that He loves you and He loves me. And for true love to exist means free will needs to exist. I don't think any of you got married by gunpoint, but you got married on account of your own freely volunteering love for another person, and that's the kind of love that God has for us and wants in return. Yet we already know and see people what happens when left to their free will will often not choose God, but choose to bring more injustice and more evil into the world. And a good and righteous and just God cannot merely overlook sin and never administer and give out justice. 
Just as if you and I were wronged by a neighbor, we go to the court, and if that judge said, well, that was just rape, we love the guy, so we're not going to sentence him. Well, you declare that judge to be unrighteous. You declare that judge to be not good. God is a good God who administers justice, but God is a loving God who saves sinners. And in order to administer justice but save sinners, there needs to be one who can bear the punishment. You see, God is such a good God that whenever you or I are brought before the judge and he declares us guilty, but then the judge comes down and says, I'll take the sentence. You're free to go. God says to Barabbas, you're free. I'll keep my son back to face your punishment. You see, the cross is the only way that you and I can truly be justified before God. God is so good that He takes the necessary, absolute righteous and just and deserving judgment due to us and He puts it on Himself. And Jesus, again, is not to be your object of pity nor cause for your self-righteous judgment of God. But John 10 tells us again that Jesus laid down His own life voluntarily on His own authority. Hebrews 12.2 calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. It was Jesus' joy to endure the cross. And so do you know what this means? If God took your punishment and not yourself, it means that the judgment is over. You don't understand grace if you still think you have to work. Why? Because when you came into the proverbial courtroom and God declared you're guilty and then He took the judgment for you, then the charge was over and your justification is complete. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Later in that chapter, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Some of you need to rest in that Gospel. What Jesus is doing here in our text holds complete, unshakable, unpenetrable power forevermore. Is your hope truly built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness? I wonder if some of you Wrestle like me. Having pulled this back from 2017, I wrestled it with it then, and I came to this this past week, and it convicts me that I still wrestle with it to this day, and that is this. Contrary to what clear Scripture teaches in verse 34, I wonder if, like me, some of you think that it is your burden to intercede on your behalf before the Father. We say silly things like, I know Jesus saved me, but I'm so, 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 so sorry for the sin that fouls me up. And Lord, I'm I'm sure you're this close to being done with me. And meanwhile, the Father is completely pleased by you and me because we are in Christ Jesus. We're no longer before the bench without an advocate, but because we are justified by God and Jesus, who is to condemn? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's not our burden to intercede before the Father's throne for our salvation. That's the Lord Jesus' burden.
And He has accomplished that for us. Thank you for this picture in the book of Mark. Some ways it's clouded behind names and culture we don't understand, but in other ways, especially for those who first read the book of Mark, it is so clear and evident. One murderous, sinning son of the Father for the perfect, pure, and righteous son of the Father. Ironically, the one who is being executed and sent to his death is the one in charge of all this. So, Father, we thank you again for salvation. Help us to rest in the gospel truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, Father, whenever we sin, and sometimes we will, don't let this give us a license to sin, but help us to have a license to trust in you and say, I know he forgives me. He's a good dad. Jesus paid the price. Help me, Father. Help me, Holy Spirit, to overcome these sins. Father, I pray that this truth would be evident in our lives. It would be a truth we share with others. Would you fill us with the fruit of the Holy Spirit as we interact with those around us this week? We love you, Jesus. We ask and pray all this in his name. Amen.